Good morning, everybody. This is Alex Dolan. You're listening to Thrill Seekers Radio. We are part of Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network. And today, uh, this is part of our our uh, writers and editors uh, suite of interviews that we're doing uh, with Adam Marsh, who is one of the best editors I've met and um, has been as a veteran fiction editor, has worked for some of the top agencies uh, in the country. And, uh, and Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I thought we could talk about, for people that listen to the show, this is uh, this show covers uh, mainly thrillers in that, that huge umbrella of whatever subgenre of thriller you're interested in. But there are a lot of people that are writers uh, that listen to the show. And so I wanted to talk about writing craft and from the point of view of, of somebody who really knows fiction and has been a fiction editor, um, you know, when, what insights, what tips, pet peeves and insights can you give to somebody who is trying to hone their craft? Okay, uh, I have some tips I'd like to share. And uh, the first one, I'd like to talk about how a hook works. Uh, we all know it's important to hook the reader, and the sooner the better. Um, here's a question. Why is a hook so important beyond just hooking the reader? Uh, one thing a strong hook does is it demonstrates to your reader that you have command of the craft. It doesn't mean that uh, within a page or two that they can tell if you've written a good book. And this is especially important if you're sending your material out to prospective agents and editors. Uh, they may only give your work a page or two before they need to make a decision. Are they going to invest more time or are they going to move on to the next submission? Again, no one can tell if your narrative is good or bad in a page or two, but what readers can tell is if you as the writer are developed enough to perhaps write an exceptional book or perhaps you are not developed enough. And so what they're looking for is command of the craft. And so if you have a, a really strong hook, you should be able to point to it on the page and a skilled reader should they be able to point to it right on the page and say, there is the hook. Now, the way a hook works psychologically is it creates a gap in knowledge. Uh, it's what I call the lacuna principle. The lacuna, uh, a lacuna is a gap from which something is missing. And we don't like to generally experience lacunas, gaps in knowledge. Uh, of knowledge. These are questions that pop up in our minds, and we want to answer the questions because when that lacuna appears in our consciousness, it creates a sense of imbalance. And we like to restore balance. And the only way the reader can restore balance or fill in those lacunas, those lacunas, is to keep reading. And there are various techniques on how to do this. Um, when I worked at uh, Reese Halsey North Literary Agency, uh, when interns would come in, we would take books off the shelf and we would see if we could find the hook and point to it right on the page. And uh, I have a couple uh, techniques I'd like to share with your listeners. That would be great. Um, and actually, uh, I'm just quickly curious about where does the origin of the term lacuna come from? Or I haven't heard of that term before. Yeah, so lacuna is Spanish for gap. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, G-A-P. But um, in, my, <laughs> in the context I use it, it is more specifically a gap from which something is missing. Got it. So, example, if you were going to your refrigerator and you open the refrigerator, there's a head of lettuce, there's some milk, uh, and there's a can of Coca-Cola. You're not experiencing a lacuna. But if you go to your refrigerator and you expect to find a Hershey bar in there and all you see is a head of lettuce 
some milk and a can of Coke and no Hershey bar, you experience a lacuna. There is a gap from which something is missing. Okay. Yeah, and that creates uh, a level of dis-ease in the reader. And dis-ease is very, very important when it comes to storytelling. Here's the technique. Um, I'm, I'm going I'm to share with you, say, three techniques, very common techniques, but there are many more techniques. Uh, the first one I would like to share is what I call multiple hooks. And I will read the first paragraph from a book uh, called The Confessions of Max Tivoli by Andrew Sean Greer. And I'll read through the paragraph, and then I'll go through and identify the hooks. We are each the love of someone's life. I wanted to put that down in case I am discovered and unable to complete these pages, in case you become so disturbed by the facts of my confession that you throw it into the fire before I get to tell you of great love and murder. I would not blame you. So many things stand in the way of anyone ever hearing my story. There is a dead body to explain, a woman three times loved, a friend betrayed, and a boy long sought for. So I will get to the end first and tell you that we are each the love of someone's life. So the multiple hooks embedded in this paragraph have to do with uh, great love and murder, a dead body to explain, a woman three times loved, a friend betrayed, and a, bo a boy long sought for. So at this point, just coming into the narrative, there's no way the reader would have any idea of how to make meaning out of this. But what we have, if it is effective for a particular reader, is a series of questions or lacunas that have opened up in the consciousness of that reader's mind. And if the hook is successful, the reader is going to feel compelled to fill those gaps. And the only way the reader can do that is to continue into the narrative. And that's what I call multiple hooks right there, that technique. A second technique, uh, very popular, is called rarefying the event. And I will read a first paragraph of a novel called Exit Wounds by J.A. Jantz. Now, when it comes to rarefying the event, what the, what the narrator wants to do is say, we have this character here who has been acting in a particular manner for a long time. A pattern has been established, but that pattern has been interrupted at the moment that we come into the story. For some reason, today, everything has changed. And the reason uh, to keep reading is to answer the question, why today? What is different about today? Mm. So here is uh, Exit Wounds from J.A. Jantz. The heat was a factor, but more disturbing than physical discomfort was thinking about the approaching interview. She had kept her mouth shut for almost 30 years. For that long, other than pouring her heart out to her grandmother, she had been part of an ugly conspiracy of silence. No more. Tomorrow. Today, in fact, she was going to talk. To strangers, to reporters, she was going to let it all hang out. The question is, what would happen then? So we come into the story with an interruption of routine, which is a pretty good way to start off a narrative. Right. And it almost feels like, the, so both of these techniques, you're talking about some, some kind of disruption in the normal course of life is, is imminent. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's called an interruption of routine. And sometimes the interruption of routine can happen just after the story begins, or it may have happened before the story began. And the story is about the fallout of that interruption. Uh, Hemingway's short story, The Hills Like White Elephants, is a great example of, uh, of us coming into a story after the interruption of routine has happened, which involves a pregnancy. Okay, so again, uh, beginning a narrative with an interruption of routine can be very effective. 
Um, and uh, I call that rarefying the event. Uh, when we establish that a character has been behaving in a particular pattern, but for some reason, today, when we come into the story, everything's changed. And the question is, why? And there's the lacuna right there. And in order to fill that gap, we must continue on into the narrative. Good writers know how to open up these lacunas in the minds of the reader throughout the narrative. You always want to keep your reader a little off balance. You want to let them think they know where the story's going, and you want to make sure it doesn't go quite there. So we were talking a little bit about um, the, uh, you'd mentioned the hills like white elephants and how that's a good example of starting after, I guess, what the, you know, the inciting incident or, or event has, has happened and we're, um, I can't remember the, how to pronounce the Latin phrase, but is it in medias ray? Um, in medias rest, yeah. In medias rest, yeah. They start, like, you know, basically starting after, um, this disruption has happened. Right. Yeah. Uh, sometimes if you begin a story at the beginning, it's like um, being on a uh, fully loaded locomotive that's starting from a dead stop. And before it gets up to running speed, a lot of people are just going to jump off. Yeah. And so if, if you, if you just want to uh, hit the ground running, sometimes you can come into the story after the interruption of routine. And what we see is the fallout. And of course you can always go back at any time in the narrative to what happened and what built up to the interruption itself. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And especially for, yeah. for uh, the thriller genre, I would say, I would think that, that would be like a very big tip because oh, absolutely. I hear yeah. so much talk about pacing and um, kind of what you're implying is like, uh, if you start there, then people don't have to wait for your story to ratchet up to be fully engaged. Um, right. Yeah. And, and whenever I see a, a strong hook, it just gives me confidence in the writer. I feel like I'm in good hands. I know that this person has some measure of control over the craft. And when I was reading a lot of submissions at the agency, um, you know, these these are the stories I would take home on the weekend and invest a lot of time in when I when uh, when I would see um, the exhibition of craft just done uh, very competently. Um, there's one more technique that's real popular uh, that your listeners may be interested in. Uh, it's what I call using an image as a hook. And uh, a novel called Sometimes a Great Notion by Ken Kesey begins with a very unusual image. And what we see is a house alongside a raging river that's in flood stage. Um, outside of the second story of the house is a long fur pole hanging over the uh, raging waters. And from the pole, there is tip of the pole, there's a uh, rope. And at the end of the rope, there is a human arm spinning around. And on the other side of the river, there are people yelling at the arm. And there are dogs pacing back and forth on the bank of the river, um, very upset. So we have a lot of tension and an absolutely bizarre image. And the question is, how did it come to be? Well, there's the lacuna. In order to fill that gap, we have to read the story. A good technique of using an image as a hook is sometimes take an interesting image from uh, well into the novel, place it at the very beginning without any explanation. Uh, the job here is simply to hook the reader. And then you can work your way up to how that image came to be. Yes. Uh, tip number two. Uh, I encounter a lot of manuscripts written by authors who do not know their characters well enough. They do not know them well enough uh, when it comes to what they're going to say, how they're going to act, and how they're going to react. And in a sense, they haven't done their homework. And I have a technique for uh, building characters. 
I uh, use a characterization list, which is, com which is comprised of a lot of personal questions, such as what is his or her most embarrassing moment, what, what makes him or her feel safe, uh, what is uh, he or she most ashamed of, uh, what is his or her biggest secret, questions like that that are very personal. And um, I've been using this list for a long time, but uh, I'm still kind of, uh, it's still kind of evolving. And uh, what I realized uh, recently is that if you go and you start writing a bunch of backstory for a character, even knowing that a lot of it isn't going to make it into the narrative, but you're just developing a, 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 a complex, uh, contradictory personality, um, without an emotional component in those episodes from the past, those episodes are useless. For example, if you're going to address the company, uh, the, the question, what is your main character's most embarrassing moment? And you think, okay, well, when Johnny was in second grade, uh, the teacher told him that he was going to be leading the Pledge of Allegiance on Monday, and he was so excited. Not only was he going to be uh, leading the class, but he was going to have an opportunity to impress uh, Susie, who sat in the front row. And he loved Susie, and he thought this was his chance to really shine. So... He prepares all weekend. He shows up for class Monday morning. He begins the Pledge of Allegiance, and he looks at Susie, and his mind becomes jumbled. And the words become mixed up in his head, and all of a sudden, the class starts to snicker. That grows into uh, raucous uh, laughter. Susie is laughing along with everyone else, and Johnny, and here's the emotional component, he's crushed. The important thing to know is how did he feel then and how does he feel now at the time of the current story? What is it from that episode that he has carried with him? What, uh, what has he brought to the story himself? This is part of his emotional baggage. And his emotional baggage works like a lens through which he perceives the world. And you must know the emotional baggage of your characters. You must know it. Right. You must know the, yeah, you must know the images they carry around. Um, the way we go through life, we acquire images. We have like an image bank. And that's why when we read, uh, if I read uh, this description of a greenhouse, no matter how detailed it is, that greenhouse belongs to me. I'm the one who built that house. I used the author's words, but I drew upon my own image bank to manufacture that greenhouse based on the code and the symbols, the signs and the symbols the author has provided me. So reading is a very personalized experience. In my opinion, you should know characters in that grade of detail. You should know their biggest secrets. You should know how they feel when they walk into a crowded room. You should know what they like the most and what they like the least in other people. In all of these stories that you make up, um, and you can just do it in overview, just in a couple paragraphs, but they should all have an emotional component. And in that way, you will have much more to draw from uh, throughout the narrative. Well, I think I think this ties in nicely with your your first point about the hooks too, because uh, there is something I wanted to say about the Ken Kesey example, which is uh, you're using this really dramatic. You're dropping us into chaos in that scene where there's basically a, a an arm rotating off of a pole. And yes. I think for the the beauty of that is that would be you don't have to have anyone explain why that's and then you know a disruption <laughs> to your life right because most people right. realize that that the very nature of that would be an unsettling event um, but for the mo for other objects that you're talking about other objects 
can be just objects, but uh, you know, objects by themselves are nothing without an emotional association to it. And so what you're talking right. about in terms of knowing your character's baggage, I mean, I, I, I'm speaking to people listening, you know, ultimately you probably want to know what motivates your characters to do things and whether it's in character or not in character for them to react a certain way to that, that arm on a pole or, or whatever else is your hook at the beginning. Um, right. Uh, so yeah, the, the baggage I think is, is critical because you want your character, if you set them up, whether it's in the middle of chaos or uh, whether it's a house you're talking about or whether it's um, you're, you're giving you know, a certain setting or a certain hook at the beginning, you know, uh, with the, the Max Tivoli uh, story, uh, the Max Tivoli book, you're talking about a woman who is thrice loved. Um, you know, that's interesting, but you want to know how that relates to the characters. And it, I think gets to what you're talking about, which is the, the deeper, you know, your characters, the more you'll understand how, how they would react to that hook you're dangling out in the, in the intro. Absolutely. And like with the Max Tivoli uh, example, with each one of those hooks, uh, there is a lot of emotion behind all of the, all of these aspects that are laid out. Uh, this is a very charged introduction, even though the reader may not, quite get that but all we have to do is make the the reader want to fill in the lacuna or that gap in knowledge and then the reader will be compelled to uh, dive into the narrative Uh, imagine this imagine a character is walking along a sidewalk it's a bright sunny day she's in a great mood Um, she is going to go home and meet her husband for and they're going to go out for lunch and she walks by a sidewalk cafe and she smells pipe tobacco and it smells good to her, kind of sweet. But all of a sudden, she notices that her mood changes drastically, and she doesn't know why. She goes home. Her husband says, you look upset. And she goes, I don't know what's going on with me. I was in such a great mood, and I just, I just don't want to go anywhere right now. And what happened, perhaps, is that when this adult woman was a little girl, she had an uncle who smoked a pipe, and he had a very loud laugh. And he was a very big man with a booming voice, and he used to frighten her. So she made that connection between that smell and that feeling. And she may not even remember that uncle or the smell of the smoke consciously. But that emotional baggage and that association with that smell is part of the lens through which she perceives her world at the time of the story, the current story. She's carried that with her this whole time. And, you know, I think we do that as people. As we go through life, we acquire baggage. And we cannot leave our baggage at home. I don't know if you've ever gone on a vacation thinking you're going to leave your baggage at home. And um, and you go on vacation and all, all of your uh, worries and uh, things that are stressing you out seem to have followed you. <laughs> right, right. You know, so characters work the same way. Well, uh, create, a, yeah, create a lot of baggage for them. Yeah, and I just want to, to reinforce for people listening that the um, the exercise that Adam's talking about in terms of this characterization questionnaire to fill out, um, I you know I think based on your recommendation, I started using this a few years ago, and I've added to it, to it questions like who are they attracted to and things like that, and um, these things may never make it to your book. Um, right. And so the, you know, that's the thing that that's up to you. That's, that's the beauty of it. Um, you may not have to, um, I mean, 
you may not have to belabor us with exposition on every bit of baggage that the person has, but at least you'll know going in why someone is reacting a certain way. Right. You, you have to know what their emotional buttons are. And you need, in order to do that, you have to create a lot more information than you're ever going to use in the story. But it's there from which you can draw. And you need to have that. Um, because uh, most writers, or a lot of writers, do not have their stories completely figured out. So um, just make sure that if anything, you've, you've, uh, you've put too much work into characterization, if that's possible. Uh, because I, like I said, I, I encounter uh, manuscripts where I can tell the writer doesn't know. I had uh, um, uh, an author uh, I was working with, and his main character kept saying, um, and what was obvious to me was that the character was buying time uh, to figure out what he was going to say the way that we do in real life. But that doesn't always work out in a story. And, um, and sure enough, once we started talking about character development, that was the case, was that he didn't know what the character was going to say, what he should say, because he didn't know the character enough. Um, and as far as character development, there's one other thing I would like to share a couple things, actually. Uh, uh, I'll talk about a character schematic and also an exercise I call the emotional onion. And so imagine you cross-cut an onion and you can see the different layers. So imagine the outside layer. That is the obvious emotion that a character will experience at any particular time in the narrative. That's what we see. It is the most predictable, the most obvious emotion. What's really interesting is when you start looking at the deeper layers, the secondary emotions, which often contradict what's on the surface. For example, a character is speeding down the highway. She is stressed out. She is going to take the bar exam. And uh, she all of a sudden notices highway patrolman is behind her. Red lights are on. She pulls over. She explains her story. The officer says, well, I st I'm still going to cite you, writes her a ticket, uh, and she looks at her watch and she's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to blow the test. I'm, I missed the test. And at first we may see that obvious emotion, which she's upset, but maybe the secondary emotion is completely different. And we realize that she never really wanted to be a lawyer and that she was only doing it to satisfy her parents who expected her to be a lawyer and had trained her to be a lawyer her entire life. And maybe now she's starting to get a different take on what happened with that highway patrolman and is now uh, appreciating it in a way that she didn't appreciate it at the beginning. And she might even now read that as a sign. Right. And so without exploring that secondary emotion, we never would have known that. That makes sense, and yeah. Then, yeah, another example. Uh, uh, recently I read a story from one of my students um, about uh, best friends. Uh, these two girls had grown up together and now they're in college, and uh, the main character looks at the other character, someone who seems to have gone through life without all the trials and tribulations that the, that the narrator has experienced. She is the smartest. She's the prettiest. Um, doors just swing wide open for her. And it kind of bothers the narrator, although she would never say anything like that to her best friend. Her best friend calls her and says she just got into a very prestigious college and she's got this great internship set up. Meanwhile, the narrator is struggling through a community college and, and is having a hard time getting an internship. And the narrator says to her best friend, I am so happy for you. I knew you could do it. I am so proud. That's the obvious emotion. 
But what's underneath that may be very different. Um, what's underneath that, what is hidden, may be jealousy. Um, it may be uh, the wish that perhaps her friend would uh, experience life the way that she does, which is uh, the hard way. And these are the things that the character keeps stored inside, but they're there and they cannot be ignored because sometimes they're going to come up to the surface. You know, we try to push these things down and sometimes they just build up strength and they come to the surface. And it's a great, great part of storytelling. It makes for a great story. So is, what you're talking about now, is this a different way to talk about subtext or is there, would you categorize this as, as something else? Well, I, I still think we're in the realm of characterization. Okay. And, and, um, and as far as storytelling, if characters always react the way that the audience thinks they're going to react, they become too predictable, too one-dimensional. So when you're looking for uh, surprising turns, dig deep into those secondary emotions and understand that they may completely uh, contradict what's on the surface. Uh, uh, this idea yeah. – yeah, go ahead. No, I was, was going to give out an example of one of the uh, the thrillers I've loved in the last 10 years, which was um, uh, Shutter Island. And in that book, the uh, the main character is essentially deluding himself. Um, he's Basically, he's a detective who is, or a U.S. Marshal who's trying to find somebody who's ran away from uh, a psychiatric facility on a remote island. And, um, you know, when you without spoiling it, although I imagine most people who've listened to this have either read the book or seen the movie at this point. But, um, you know, towards the end of it, you realize that he's basically been fooling himself. And none of those emotions have ever come to the surface. And you only realize that he's having them after you, the, the great reveal has happened. But they're also incredible motivators throughout the entire course of the book uh, of why he's doing certain things. Because he's not really acting as a U.S. Marshal. That's the surface that you're seeing, but there's a lot going on in the surface that's, that's driven by the real emotional story. Uh-huh. Yeah, excellent. And if the author would not have explored those secondary emotions, um, it would have been hard to inform the character's um, actions and thoughts. Right. Uh, another technique uh, for characterization is what I call a character schematic, which is to make a visual of how the characters relate to one another. So let's say we have three characters, character A, B, and C. So you draw your triangle with your circles, A, B, and C. And you draw an arrow from A to B, and you talk about what character A gives to character B. And then you draw an arrow from character B to character A. Describe what character B gives to character A. Same thing, character A. What does character A give to character C? What does character C give to A? What does B give to C? What does character C give to B? And just write it out in general terms, but you'll know it, it, it will help you understand the dynamic between multiple characters. And sometimes they have a group dynamic. Sometimes two characters can relate in a particular way, and then a third character comes into the scene, and the relationship between the first two characters is now different. Right. Um, you know, the John Cassavetti's film's Faces is a great example of that. You have some guys going out on the town. Uh, they're drinking. Everyone's getting along great. A pretty woman walks in the room, and now they're competitors. Um, and so it's, it's nice to have that visual uh, of how the characters relate instead of just trying to hold it in your mind. 
Right. Okay. Uh, you want to move on to the next uh, hey, next tip? Let's let's go. We're we're get we're working our way through five tips. So let's go on to number three. Number three. Uh, let's talk about how to re-inhabit the scenes of your narrative. So you've written your first draft, and now it's time to go back and go through the manuscript again. And as uh, you writers know, when you become too familiar with your work, you develop blind spots. It becomes hard to see. In fact, that's one thing an editor has to offer is that editors will show you your own work in a new way. They will defamiliarize it for you. So here's a technique of, in a sense, defamiliarizing your own work. And the objective here is to see some things, perhaps, that you can use that you missed on the initial draft. And so uh, one thing I would, I would uh, concentrate on is this idea of the micro stage within the macro stage. So the micro stage is the small stage. The macro stage is the larger stage. Uh, I'll give you an example of a scene from um, Jerry Maguire, the, the, the film Jerry Maguire. So Jerry has been called to um, a restaurant by his uh, associate, Bob Sugar. They're inside the restaurant. It's very crowded, very lively. They're sitting at a table in the middle of the room. And that table, what's going on with those two characters at the table is the micro stage. The macro stage is the restaurant itself. And so uh, Bob Sugar tells Jerry, I've invited you here this afternoon to let you go. I'm, I got to fire you. And Jerry is stunned. And instead of having Jerry talk right then, what the filmmaker does, the director Cameron Crowe, is he shows us scenes of what's going on around Jerry and Bob. We cut to uh, a woman laughing and, and taking a drink. We hear the ice in her glass. There are people um, laughing over here. There are people behind Jerry singing happy birthday. It is in stark contrast with what's going on in the micro stage. So we have two levels. We have a foreground and a background of action. And sometimes they can play off of one another. Sometimes you can juxtapose them. They can be very different or they can be similar. Different ways to, to, um, to work them in together. But think in terms of the micro stage within the larger macro stage. And I'll give you another example here. Uh, let's say there's a couple inside their apartment. So the apartment is the micro stage. The macro stage is the area outside the apartment. That's the larger stage. So they're inside the living room. They're having a very tense argument. And then they hear this music. There's a car driving by the apartment, windows down, stereo is cranked. And I mean, even the windows are shaking. So this couple, they stop talking and they listen to the music for a second. And then one of the, uh, of the character says to the other, remember when we used to dance to that song? And just like that, the scene changes completely. And it, it, it seems like it came out of nowhere, but where it came from was the larger stage. So the objective here is when you're thinking in terms of the micro stage and the macro stage, think about what is happening outside of the immediate area of the action, because there may be something out there that you can use, that you can bring in to the micro stage and use. And you usually don't get that on the first pass or the second pass or even the third pass through a narrative. This is something that you do with each draft. You go in and you start thinking in terms of what's going on around the main action. Uh, another example, you could have a couple people sitting at a uh, 
on a park bench or at a, uh, at a table, sitting at a table at a park having a picnic. And they're talking. And in the background, there's um, a storm building. And then we cut back to the foreground with the people talking. That's the micro stage. Then we go to the larger stage and we go back to the storm building in the background. And there may be a relationship between what's going on between the, in, in the micro stage and the macro stage. But that's a nice exercise to do is to go through your scenes one at a time, linger in them, and think about what's going on in a sense outside of the frame, outside of the small micro stage, because you may be able to use something there. The, the example that this makes me think of is the, the book Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, where the, the introductory scene is this kind of now infamous scene of a guy being stuck in his car in a bad neighborhood for 50 pages. And so you get all, you get a real sense of that scene, and that that all of a sudden, you know, this it, it builds natural tension, and then you're almost, you know, when you go to the micro scene, you you basically that's you're standing in for this guy's eyes and ears and sen- and senses. You're you're kind of taking in all of this for him. It's like the Jerry Maguire scene that you're talking about, in a way, like you, it sounds like you're talking about. Like all of a sudden we're inhabiting that character even more because we're getting to to see the sensory barrage that that person is taking in right now. Right, right. And like in the Jerry Maguire scene, uh, the, the, uh, the storyteller is using juxtaposition of contrasting elements. So we have what's going on on the micro stage, which is very tense, a very unhappy moment for Jerry. And yet he's surrounded by very happy, boisterous people. And that's the stark juxtaposition right there. So the juxtaposition itself creates a dynamism in energy. Uh, juxtaposition uh, applies to any discipline. You know, I learned this when studying music. I wanted to be the fastest guitar player on the planet. This is back in the 80s when, you know, shredding was the thing. And when I got to where I could play that fast, I realized that if you want to play fast, you have to play slow. Because if you play fast all the time, there is no more fast. That becomes the norm. So you have to think in terms of dynamics and juxtaposition. You want to play fast, then you've got to play slow. It even applies to color. Juxtaposition of color would be like red and green or blue and orange. Right. Uh, because they are um, the opposites, uh, the complementary colors, uh, diametrically opposed on the color wheel. Um, very, very effective in storytelling to think of juxtaposition. Um, hot and cold, fast and slow. You place those elements close together, you get an energy. Right. Um, now, another thing you can do. Uh, oh, uh, just one more example from uh, uh, concerning the micro macro stage. Say you have a scene set in a restaurant at a booth. What's going on at the booth is the micro stage. There may be something going on, maybe in the larger stage, either outside the restaurant or in another part of the restaurant that may affect what's going on on the micro stage. Maybe someone drops a bunch of dishes. And that startles the people at the booth and they stop talking for a second. And then the tone of the, of the conversation of the dialogue changes completely because of those crashing plates. Right. And you may not, yeah, may not have noticed on draft one, but maybe in draft two, you're like, oh, Hey, I can use that, bring that in. Um, so I think that's that one of the advantages of thinking in terms of micro stage and macro stage. Uh, another tip, uh, as far as re-inhabiting scenes when you go uh, from draft two uh, onward, is depict a scene from your narrative from another character's point of view. 
Uh, if we go back to that scene in the restaurant, maybe you're going to depict that scene from uh, the busboy's point of view. Um, someone that doesn't really have uh, anything to do with the story, someone who isn't inside the story. And, and the objective here is to perhaps see something or hear something that you didn't notice with the original point of view, uh, which would have been uh, restricted to probably one or maybe both of those characters. But now we have a new perspective. In a sense, we've moved the camera to a new position to think like a filmmaker here. We've moved the camera. And you may see something that you didn't realize. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I was working on a novel that involved uh, a family. Uh, the family has uh, gotten together in Colorado. The kids have not seen each other in years. The mother is in very poor health in her last days. So the family has gathered to uh, address the um, the circumstances and the two sisters um, after traveling all day they're they're pretty wiped out it's late at night they're sitting uh, at a kitchen table uh, they're having a glass of wine and they're getting caught up and on top of the table we see politeness smiles they're talking about their families and their jobs but if you look closely when we move the camera if you look closely you can see how the younger sister has her fist balled up so tight that there's no blood in her knuckles. Mm. And that image right there means something. It relates to uh, the character's emotional state. And that little detail may not have been something that you would have seen on the first draft. But by depicting the scene from someone else's point of view, you might see that by, in a sense, moving the camera. So I have a question about that. If you're, are, are you actually talking about shifting perspectives at this point? Um, yeah, I'm talking about shifting perspectives for the sake of seeing something new. Okay. Now, yeah, but not in the narrative itself. I'm not suggesting give the busboy a point of view in the story. Right. But, but as an exercise, when you go through your scenes and you're re-inhabiting your scenes, and what I mean by re-inhabit is you get inside of a particular scene and linger there, engage your senses, walk around, smell the air, touch stuff as if you're walking around a movie set. And you may discover things that you didn't notice. Um, so yes, to answer your question, I'm not suggesting give these secondary characters a point of view in the narrative, but just for the sake of perhaps their point of view may open something up that you can use, may bring your sense. attention yeah. to it. Uh, one more thing as far as re-inhabiting scenes. I'd like to talk about the, uh, the objective and the subjective arenas. And what I mean by arena, I mean stage, like a stage upon which action can transpire. In life, we as human beings, uh, we have an objective arena. Objective in this context uh, relates to what is going on outside of us or outside of a character. And then we have a subjective arena or a subjective stage, which has to do with um, what we're thinking. Uh, we always have action going on in our minds while we have action going on outside of our bodies uh, concurrently, even when we sleep. You know, our dreams are, are made up of, of our baggage, um, uh, that subjective arena. Um, so... As an exercise, when you're going to re-inhabit your scenes, say you have a character walking to work, uh, getting off a bus and walking a couple blocks to work, uh, something may happen along the way. Um, but you should also know what that character is thinking because there may be something 
in that's going on inside the character that you didn't that didn't occur to you on the on the first draft um, that you can use, and it may relate to what's going on outside of the character. Um, okay. Yeah. A, as an example, um, uh, when you pitch your story, uh, it's always good to know about the objective and the subjective dilemmas of the character. A, a good pitch is one to two sentences. That's all it takes. One to two sentences. And in those one or two sentences, you are going to address the objective and subjective arenas. I'll give you an example. Uh, a meek, uh, mild-mannered boy finds an extraterrestrial in his closet and must find the courage to defy authorities in order to help the extraterrestrial get home. And, of course, that's so the, describing the Godfather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, uh, what's happening outside of the character is that he finds uh, E.T. in his closet. Um, that's the objective arena. That's uh, the action is happening outside of him. But inside, there's a stage also in on that stage. That is where he must find the courage to defy authorities in order to complete his mission. So, you know, in my opinion, a good pitch always addresses the objective and subjective dilemmas of the main character. And when you can pitch that in one to two sentences, um, then what you're demonstrating is that you have multi-layered characters, that these are not one-dimensional one-trick ponies, that they have stuff going on outside of them and they have stuff going on inside of them at all times. And while writing, don't forget that. Don't, don't become so focused on what's going on on outside or what's going on inside try to be aware of both arenas or stages concurrently mm -hmm. um let's see i uh, want to move on to the next tip yeah let's go okay uh read like writers uh, and this is common read like writers so uh we're going to talk about reading uh written text we're going to talk about reading film and we're going to talk about reading the moments of our lives as writers. So when it comes to reading the written text, uh, when you want to read as a writer, you want to be very um, mindful of the craft issues. So pay attention to the way the storyteller brings you into that fictive world, brings you out of your ordinary world into, um, into a dream, basically. What does that storyteller give you? Does uh, in the first sentence, in the first paragraph, do you have a setting? Do you have a character? Do you have a conflict or an attitude? Pay attention to the way a uh, setting is depicted. Does the storyteller give you a bunch of information all at once or spread it out? Just a couple little very interesting, clearly seen details from time to time. Pay attention to the way storytellers depict characters. Generally, when I get to character descriptions, I find myself skimming. You know, I don't really care if they have a square jaw or blue eyes. Um, that's just my thing. Right. Um, I'll, yeah, you know, you want, you want to look for very clearly seen interesting detail. Um, pay very close attention to the way chapters end and the way chapters begin. If, uh, take a look at, for example, the way chapter one ends and the way chapter two begins. Is there a relationship between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two? Is the storyteller using juxtaposition? In other words, does chapter one in, end in a very dynamic moment with a lot of movement, and then we come into chapter two and there's no movement and it's quiet and we have that 
really stark juxtaposition right there? Or does chapter two come in during a dynamic moment also? And different authors are going to have different styles. And you can see this um, by reading, and you can see this by studying film, film as text. We read film as a text. Pay attention to dialogue scenes. Now, good dialogue usually has beats. Beats usually uh, involve a physical action, uh, and often they're very small physical actions. And what the beats do in the midst of dialogue is it allows your dialogue to breathe. It slows it down a bit. And what follows a beat or a small pause, the words that follow will usually carry a bit more weight than what preceded it. I'll give you an example. Uh, here's a quotation. Um, I know. I've known for a long time. There's no beat there. We have two sentences, no beat. Here it is with a beat. I know, she said, and took a long drag off her cigarette and blew the smoke up toward the ceiling. I've known for a long time. So we have that little pause. Mm -hmm. And the line that follows that little pause, I've known for a long time, has a little bit more oomph because it follows a pause. And what a pause does is it allows the character a moment to gather his or her thoughts. And so we know that what that we know that the result is going to be powerful. It's not going to be just a line that was blurted out. Um, also what a beat does um, and pay attention to the types of beats particular writers use is that if you have too much dialogue and you don't keep reminding the readers that these characters have a physical presence on a stage, the voices become disembodied and uh, it's almost like talking the reader's ear off. So always bring the reader back to this idea that the characters have a physical presence on a stage. And you can do that with little actions, taking a sip of wine, um, body language, facial expression. Um, I love the film Sex, Lies, and Videotape, um, uh, where Anne and Graham are getting to know one another. And as Graham's talking um, and Anne is talking, you can see Anne... Uh, you can tell what she's thinking by her physical actions, the way she's holding her glass, uh, the way she's moving her body. These little physical actions that you would depict in dialogue. So when you read, uh, look at te written text as instruction manuals and, and listen to the dialogue, read it aloud, pay very close attention to the rhythm, the pauses, and those beats, those little physical actions. You can do the same thing in cinema. And the great thing about watching film is you can cover a lot of story in a short period of time. When you're watching skilled actors, they know how to use props, cigarettes, glasses of wine, um, you know, uh, chewing tobacco, anything that they're, that they're going to um, be using while they're talking. Pay attention to the way they do that, because if you were writing that scene, that would be the kind of physical actions that you would put in there for beats. This, this is a... This is an example from film that I've I've uh, I've given before, but I so last week I I rewatched the movie uh, the David Fincher movie Seven for the first time in a long time, and um, one of the things that came out for for me was how they develop Morgan Freeman's character, and uh, or how Morgan Freeman as an actor develops his character taking advantage of these beats, and uh, one of uh, one of the things I really loved was. Uh, there was a dinner scene with him and Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow, and he's basically uh, 
it's toward the end of the night, they've had some wine, and he's listening to them talk, and he's playing with his napkin. But the way he's playing with his napkin is that he's rolled it up, and he's, and he's rolling it around his knuckles like it's boxing tape. And... Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's it, like it speaks to the characterization point as well. So we get a little bit of of a glimpse of who this guy was, maybe before he was an older, wiser detective. Um, and we also get a sense of like what what he's doing with his hands and what he's doing when he's not actively engaged in dialogue. Right, and what he's doing is speaking a language all its own. Right, you know, yeah. Um. I want to talk about reading uh, the moments of your life like a writer. So here's the thing about uh, uh, about my take on the way writers are different than, you know, normal people. Um, I've heard it said that art is the discipline of paying attention, and I believe that. Uh, I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about here. I had a writing class at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and I lived across town, and, and I was supposed to come uh, to class with an idea, <clears throat> and I had nothing. And so I wasn't worried. I said, you know, it's about a 40-minute drive. I'll just come up with an idea on the drive. And and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to pay very close attention to what's going on around me and inside my own mind, again, working that objective and subjective arenas. And so I'm like three blocks from school. Uh, Deadline is in three blocks. i got to have an idea in three blocks. And I notice that there's a bus stop. I'm driving by a bus stop, and uh, there are about four very elderly people, and one of the women is down on the sidewalk. Uh, she looks dead. About a block away, a school bus pulls over, and kids get out of the school bus. They see the commotion. Something's going on at the bus stop, and about 20 of them take off running toward the bus stop because they want to see what's going on. And one of the old gentlemen got between the woman who was on the sidewalk and these young kids and held his arms out and stopped them and tried to block their view. And I caught all this in just like two seconds. I was just driving by. And if I did not need an idea for a story, I would not have noticed it. But even if I did, I don't know if it would have had any meaning for me. But I was looking for imagery uh, that I could use as metaphor or, or something that would inspire me. And in that image, in that instant, I became inspired to write a story. Because it, the the image itself held meaning for me because I wanted it to. I was looking for the meaning in the image, and that's the only reason I found it. Right. So I think that you know, creative people, uh, especially writers, they know how to find the miraculous in the ordinary. And in my opinion, those are the most gifted writers that can do that. Uh, and if you pay close attention, you will find it anywhere. I used to do uh, an exercise as a film student to improve my directorial eye. So what I would do is if I were uh, in a mundane setting, like standing in line at a bank, I would think, okay, how would I film this? Well, before I know how I'm going to film it, I need a dramatic context. So I'm looking around at the space. Uh, I'm looking at the quality of light coming through the shades. I'm looking at the ceiling fans. There's an armed guard over by the door. I'm looking at the tellers. I'm smelling the air. Uh, I'm scooting my shoes over the smooth marble floor. And I imagine, what if the guy uh, in front of me, what if a note dropped out of his pocket and I bent over to pick it up and I read the note? What do you think that note says? <laughs> and I say, what, what do I do now? And I look over at the guard. I look over at the guard. And now I'm, I've got a dramatic context. And now uh, the guard, the image of the guard means something to me. Um, 
the sound, the squeaking sound of the uh, fan, the overhead fan, that little squeak that I wouldn't have noticed is really starting to make my teeth hurt for some reason. It's because I'm stressed out after finding this note. So this is an exercise that I did um, trying, in a sense, to find the miraculous in the ordinary, the interesting things that are going on around me uh, in my ordinary mundane world. And when I started to look for the treasure, I started to find it. And I, that's what I call reading like a writer. Look for it in written text. Look for it uh, in well-directed cinema or on television. Look for it in the moments of your life. To tell a good story, all you need is all around you at all times. Uh, in my storytelling class, I show a film called Smoke with Harvey Keitel and William Hurt. And near the end of the movie, there's a scene where Harvey... Harvey's character is going to tell William Hurt's character a story. William Hurt is playing a novelist. He has a deadline. He has to come up with a Christmas story. He doesn't know any. So Harvey Keitel's character says, I know one. Buy me lunch. I'll tell you a great story. And we realize that he's making it up as he goes along. He looks at the newspaper that was in his hand. He reads a headline. He sees the picture of a couple guys that were killed during a robbery. And he cast those people into his story based on just the headline in those pictures. And it was right there in front of him in the newspaper. If he did not have that narrative dilemma, in other words, that deadline, he probably wouldn't have even been thinking in terms of making a story out of what was right in front of him. So basically so you're, you're call, advising that we all be little Kaiser Soze's. Little what? Little Kaiser Soze's. exactly (laughs) that's what i call reading like a writer it's more like reading like an artist Uh, and just be confident that everything you need for inspiration is already around you already believe me it is um and trust in that um and be patient um let's see uh how about another tip yeah let's do it How about think like a filmmaker? Okay, think like a filmmaker. When you read, and this is the best way to train, when you read, be very attentive to the mental picture that you form in your mind, the pictures that you form in your mind as you read. You're using the words of the author, but you are the one making the imagery. Pay very close attention to it as if you are a film director. Um, Think in terms of close-up, medium shots, and shots. Um, That's a good way to start. I can give you an example of a, of a paragraph that uses this technique. It's a very common technique, but I think this is a great example. Um, this is from a novel called Cold Mountain, and I'll just read the first paragraph. Um, At the first gesture of morning, flies began stirring. In men's eyes and the long wounded his neck drew them, and the sound of their wings and touch of their feet were soon more potent than a yard full of roosters in rousing a man to wake. So he came to yet one more day in the hospital ward. He flapped the flies away with his hands and looked across the foot of his bed to an open triple-hung window. Ordinarily, he could see to the red road and the oak tree and the low brick wall, and beyond them to a sweep of fields and flat piney woods that stretched to the western horizon. The view was a long one for the flatlands, the hospital having been built on the only swell within eyeshot. But it was too early yet for a vista. The window might as well have been painted gray. So 
generally speaking, in film classes, they tell students to start with a wide establishing shot. You establish the stage, the characters on the stage, then you come in for your closer shots. This is the opposite technique here. This narrator is starting with a close-up. We see a fly on the wound of a man's neck, and we know it's a close-up because the sound of its wings and the touch of their feet were soon more potent than a yard full of roosters. So we have that exaggeration. That makes it big. Mm-hmm. That fly would fill the entire screen. Now, in cinema, you have a concrete frame. In literature, the frame is not concrete. It's very subjective. But we have a clear close-up here. And then we see the character in Min in bed uh, in a hospital room. And that is in a medium shot. And then, in a sense, the camera moves over to the window. We look out at the vista. Now we have the wide shot. So we went from close-up to medium shot to wide shot. Hemingway's short story, Hills Like White Elephant, starts with a wide shot of the Ebro Valley in Spain. We come into a medium shot of a couple sitting at a table and then to a close-up to the cold beers being set down on the table. That's moving in the opposite direction, but three very definitive steps. So when you start thinking in those terms, when you can start visualizing as you read in terms of close-ups, medium shots, and wide shots, you develop your directorial eye. And in my opinion, it's very, um, it's a great gift to have as a writer, um, because if you cannot see the imagery in your own narrative clearly, there is no way anyone else will ever see it clearly. No one will ever see what you see exactly anyway. There's always going to be some measure of disconnection between the author and the writer, but the author uh, is tasked with uh, trying to guide the reader toward a particular image. Um, this, this also yeah, seems it, to be uh, a good way to, to tie in a lot of the previous points that you're bringing up because we're talking about by thinking like a filmmaker, you're talking about thinking about the macro and the micro scene taking place and you're talking about um, you know how to, how to re-envision the scene into what details you're showing, what's, what's the lens that you're going to be focusing on in that particular scene, whether it's somebody's hands balling into fists under the table or, um, or, you know, a fly in a wound. Right. Right. Yeah. For me, it all started with thinking like a filmmaker. I mean, that's how I got into storytelling. Um, you know, I started with film and then moved on into literature. And I think I learned more about storytelling by studying film and I still study film. Um, I show film, uh, I, I teach film history and I look at films like taxi driver and I see Robert De Niro playing Travis Bickle well, there's an interesting thing that Travis does with his eyes, and it tells you a lot about what's going on in his mind, and he does it throughout the whole film. And it's kind of subtle, and you may not have, have noticed if you've seen the film. Go back and, and look at those physical actions of Travis Bickle, and they tell you what's going on in his mind. Hmm. Um, so in, in that way, we have access to his subjective arena through his eyes, the way that he looks at other people, the way that people look at him. Interesting. I have to rewatch that now. In fact, I remember a quotation I saw of Martin Scorsese. I think he was being interviewed by Charlie Rose. And uh, so, you know, Marty's, uh, he's directed a lot of violent films, you know, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Casino, Taxi Driver. Uh, he was asked, uh, what is his most violent film? And he said, Age of Innocence. And the interviewer looked like, you know, Marty was putting him on. He says, no, the, the violence was conveyed in the way the characters looked at each other. It was in the eyes. Hmm. And what inspired Marty for that film was the Kubrick film, uh, Barry Lyndon. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, and the, the other, one so, of the things that I, that, I, that I find interesting in terms of thinking like a filmmaker, and you're kind of talking about this a little bit, um, this is my own two cents, is that uh, I like the fact that filmmaking sometimes teaches you the value of silence. And the yes. fact, and especially for writers that write a lot of exposition in their dialogue, like you can, with with a good film, you can see what's conveyed by action. And um, I think people have gotten so good at it, in, depending on what you're watching these days, that you can watch a lot of screenplays that have very little dialogue in them. It's just enough, you know, they only talk when they absolutely have to. I think I remember one actor talking about it saying you only talk when you you need the character needs something that's the only reason they they speak yeah 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 and um so i think that like thinking like a filmmaker is really good because it it would it'll help uh it'll you know it'll help the pacing that you're going for and the dialogue that you're writing make sure it's not you're not having people monologuing for too long and um it'll kind of create that this balance that adam i think you're talking about which is, you know, you're talking about different, you know, choosing what you're seeing in the scene and choosing what details to focus on and making sure you have some dynamics in there so you're mixing it up. So, you know, to put this in, in filmography terms, you're not just, like, lingering on a wide shot for the whole time. Um, right. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think it, it's, very, it's very helpful for a lot of things. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, they talk about uh, – a shot variety in film school and uh, with the written word it's the same thing shot variety we don't in a sense want to just look at the same shot of two people sitting at a table uh, for too long it can you know in, unless that's the intention that static image uh, which can be used as effect mm-hmm. um, you know if it's intentional it's fine but um, yeah it's good to kind of come in and out and know when to do that and it takes practice right yeah, the, one of the one of the habits I started picking up lately is I've been watching. These I usually do this with films I've seen before, but for some films that I've seen before, I'll count the seconds that the camera stays in a shot. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's, yeah. And it's you know for most films now, uh, it's you know it's only a couple seconds. If somebody if somebody the camera stays like there was a very long scene uh, that was, uh, not seen, but there's a very long shot that was 15 or 20 seconds in a movie I was just watching. And that scene, they stayed on it because the actor was, was unraveling at that point. And there was so much happening on screen that it's, it warranted this longer shot. But, um, it's really interesting, like how you don't think about it so much when you're just casually watching films, but how quickly that camera changes. Um, and I think it speaks to for for writing fiction and writing books. Uh, for me, that kind of speaks to the 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 issue of pacing and how essential a well paced book is now. Right. Yeah. And the pacing in films has become so much faster. I mean, we've been trained uh, probably starting with the MTV uh, to process these really fast cuts. Where you know, if you would have shown a, a contemporary film fifty years ago, a lot of people would probably have been very confused mm-hmm. and and so uh you know our, our our watching habits are different um you know i want to point out uh, a really big difference between the film audience and readers film audiences are unless you're there reading as a writer uh they're passive the imagery is brought to them delivered to them it is framed to them 
um, the the directors not only direct the actors, but directors direct the audience. They determine where we look on the on the screen uh, by way of focus and camera movement. Mm-hmm. When people read, they are active. And that's why reading is a lot harder. I mean, the the, the processes involved, uh, the mental processes are really complicated. Uh, but we, as readers, we create the imagery based on what the author is giving us. It takes it's a lot more work. Um, so pacing is so important. Uh, you know, if you bore a reader, uh, they've got other things going on. We're all so busy, and you have to be really mindful of pacing. Uh, one thing I do want to say about dialogue, though, uh, in, in film school and even in writing classes, I have heard teachers say that dialogue should always move the plot forward. And uh, I want to say that, uh, generally speaking, I agree with that, but there are cases when I think uh, dialogue can be effective when it doesn't move the plot forward. Uh, take a look at a storyteller like Quentin Tarantino. Now, he was very influenced by the French New Wave filmmakers. And what the French New Wave filmmakers decided to do uh, – in the course of breaking every rule they could, is they were going to have characters speak in a way that did not move the plot forward. They were just going to talk sometimes just nonsense, just nonsensical things um, as an experiment. And Tarantino has used that technique in many of his films. You know, we'll have uh, in the midst of, a, of the plot, characters start talking about the big kahuna burger or a fabulous cup of coffee or a DJ. Uh, in a way that doesn't move the plot forward, but can give the characters a sense of character. Right. Um, and so I think that if you cling to rules too tightly, it can get in the way. If you're, if you're determined to always use dialogue to move the plot forward, it can be effective, but um, it, it's really kind of getting the way, away from the way people really talk, which is fine, because if you had a, a novel full of dialogue, uh, written the way people really talk, it would bore people to death. <laughs> um, but uh, so generally, what generally what I'm getting at is when it comes to learning the rules of, of artistic uh, endeavor, uh, don't cling to them too tightly. It's good to know know them, but don't cling to them too tightly. Um, right. And, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll just add. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I w- using Quentin Tarantino as an example, like all the all those. Um, you know, funny bits of, co- of sort of like comic drama dialogue that he drops in there that are not pushing the plot forward. You know, they go back to characterization and making you care about the people on the screen. Right, right. Uh, and, and you know, when it comes to caring for characters, be it in the written text or screen, in order to do that, we must recognize some of our own desires and the desires of the characters. We, we have to recognize aspects of ourselves on the page or on the screen, even if the characters are on the surface very different than the way we are. Uh, we have to have a desire to live through them. And the, and the desire comes from wanting to learn more about the world. And we learn a lot about the world through art, uh, through storytelling. Um, and when we see ourselves in those stories, um, it's almost like storytelling can be instructions on how to live, on how to be human in this world, on what it means to be a human in this world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So great. yeah, that those are my those are my top five my top five tips there. Fantastic. This is this has been <laughs> this has been great. Um, 
I want to take a quick break, uh, remind everybody to listen to Thrill Seekers Radio. We're part of Authors on the Air, uh, and this is a trademark copyrighted podcast solely owned by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Uh, this episode with Adam Marsh and all other episodes of Thrill Seekers are available at www.alexdolan.com. That's www.alexdolan.com. Um, we've been speaking uh, to Adam Marsh, a, a uh, one of the most thoughtful uh, editors I, I've ever met, um, and uh, you know I, I feel like we've you've, we've almost kind of given people like a brief masterclass in fiction writing. Uh, I, I always, you know, for uh, Adam and I have known each other for a long time, and I like I'm always uh, inspired by learning from you the the way with new ways to think about fiction and not only just um, the craft of writing, but also uh, what you were just talking about of, of why people like to read and, and, you know, why it's important and why it's inherent um, wiring in human beings to be attracted to storytelling because it makes sense of the world that we're living in. Yeah. It lends order to the chaos. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, so if people wanted to get in touch with you, there there are a lot of exercises that you'd brought up. Um, you are also you also work with clients on projects. What's the best way for them to find out more about you? Okay, so they can search uh, Adam Marsh uh, Editorial Services. Uh, you will see my uh, Writers Marketplace or Publishers Marketplace link. Um, or you can email me at Marsh Adam, which is M A R S H. A-D-A-M at MSN.com. Also, I have some handouts I'd be happy to send you uh, uh, regarding characterization. Uh, I have the list of questions here, and I have some examples of hooks, and I have some terms and concepts you may be interested in, so feel free to contact me, and I'd be happy to send you some information. That sounds great. And uh, again, uh, let's just... uh uh, I want to repeat the email one more time for people listening. It's marshadam at msn.com. That's M-A-R-S-H-A-D-A-M at msn.com. Um, Adam, thank you so much for making the time for this. I, I, I feel like this is a, I'm, I really have been wanting to, to get people that really know the craft to come on and, and provide uh, this, a free service for people who are out there who are writing, who, who want, want these tips and to want to get to the next level and I, I hope for people listening that that it's done that um, so Adam th- pleasure having you on and um, and yeah um, and uh, look forward to to maybe having you on down the road okay great well thank you Alex I had a great time all right me too okay bye <laughs>